Stand and deliver. Hello and welcome to the Stand and Deliver comedy podcast with me, Rodders. It's been a while since I've done one of these, so I should probably tell you what it's about. And uh, maybe if you're a new listener, it will be helpful. And also, perhaps it's just been uh, so long since you heard one, you've, you've forgotten. It's a podcast about comedy. I am a comedian and I'm also the promoter of the Stand and Deliver comedy club, uh, which resides up above Smoking Billy's Rib House in the centre of Reading. Or at least it did until very recently. Obviously, the comedy show is on a hold due to the UK being in lockdown. Now, I really hope this isn't breaking news to anyone because this really shouldn't be your first place to go for up-to-the-minute news. I mean, I haven't done a podcast in months. Could you imagine some some bloke just going outside going, oh, why are all the shops closed? What's happened to the pubs? Oh, dear. So here's the rundown of what's going on on today's Stand and Deliver comedy podcast. It's usually a peek behind the curtain into the world of comedy where we chat to some of your favourite acts. Uh, But obviously the world of comedy has kind of been... It's been put into utter disarray at the moment with all the gigs being off. Uh, but back in, uh, well, last summer, August it might have been, it might have been that long ago, before any of this mess happened, I sat down with Arna Speck backstage at Mates Rates Comedy. In fact, I think it was the show I was comparing. And we had a rather fascinating conversation. Uh, she was born in the Netherlands, came over to England, and did a degree in stand-up comedy at the University of Kent. It's pretty interesting because... A lot of people say, oh, you can't teach stand-up comedy. It's got to be something that comes from experience and uh, uh, natural ability as well. Uh, but Arna isn't the only comedian that I know that did a degree. In fact, Andy Field, who has headlined uh, Stand and Deliver at least twice, I think, um, he studied comedy at the University of Winchester. Uh, so we, we find out what exactly goes into a stand-up comedy course and whether it was actually any use and how it was useful. Uh, so that's quite an interesting thing to get into. And we also talk about uh, the cultural difference in terms of audiences in in the Netherlands and the UK. both nations have very different sense of humours, so we examine that, and we hear about how she is somehow managing to uh, juggle bringing up a child and stand-up comedy. She's recently had a baby. So I hope that my chat with Anna will take you all back to a time before any of this mess happened and will sort of serve as a reminder that at some point normality will prevail comedians you will be able to gig again and audience members you'll be able to come and audience again or watch or whatever the the verb is what i thought i would do because that interview was recorded way back last summer uh we should really um also hear something a little more up to date i thought i would bring a bonus guest onto the podcast izzy lawrence you might have heard her on radio 4's making history or seen her pop up at the stand and deliver comedy club or you might have read her new children's book the unstoppable letty peg now the thing that me and izzy both share outside doing comedy we both enjoy being active and doing our various niche sports and uh, keeping fit through them. I enjoy rock climbing and Izzy does jiu-jitsu. You're better off messing with me than messing with her, to be honest. Now, that aside, uh, now, obviously, we're we're unable to participate in our sports as usual. I've come up with some ways of getting around that and still remaining active. And uh, probably Izzy has as well. So let's find out how she's getting on. Hi, Izzy. Hello, Rodri. How are you? I'm not bad. I am surviving incarceration. Uh, sorry, I mean isolation. Okay. And uh, I am <laughs> I'm broadcasting well, from have home. You have, well, it depends. Is it incarceration? Are you wearing a tag? Uh, yes, but that's because I just forgot to take the label off when I went to Primark. 
Oh, okay. One of my favourite things uh, when I was, uh, before I went to uni, I used to do a lot of bedroom radio before I got into the real radio, inverted commas, and I, and I can't believe the age of bedroom radio has now come back thanks to this terrible pandemic. The age of bedroom, everything's come back, I think. I mean, it's quite a, it's, yeah, it's terrible, but also slightly, I don't know, I, I sort of feel the pressure's off a bit, you know, that sort of thing that we hold ourselves to really high standards and now we can just be like, eh, eh. Relax a bit. Yeah, I don't have like, to... you know. You know, do you ever do that? You know, when you you're on Twitter and you've just you know you've just come back from a really lousy gig and then you see all of these people that you've known for ages and they're all sort of like selling out at the Apollo and that sort of thing. And it's like, oh man, things aren't going. Nobody's selling out at the Apollo today. It's quite. You know, I've got a Saturday off. It's a treat. I guess it's a, it's a great leveler, isn't it? Everyone from uh, uh, every comedian from every level is now. Uh, gigless and I guess that is a, that's a really Indeed. nice optimistic way of looking at it because I was proper fed up about my comedy club being being shut I know in the big yeah. in the big scheme of things that's a small problem but it's a it's my baby that I've looked after for four years so, I'm a, so you know it's a bit uh, I, I like your optimistic spin on things well you can't I mean I, I like it when you're out of control of stuff it's when you're in control and it's your fault I feel you know that's when I feel the pressure if I'm out of control of something there's nothing I can do about it I'm quite relaxed that's true I, I was, I was, you know, there's nothing I can do I was quite grateful uh, my venue owner decided to pull the plug on the shows a little bit before and didn't leave yeah. the decision to me because that would have been a I would have just the show must go on which probably in hindsight would yeah. have been the wrong thing to well, do I actually did I did a gig on the um on the Monday night so Monday 16th when Boris Johnson did his big announcement saying we're closing all the pubs do not go to the theatres do not go to the clubs I, he made that announcement as I was driving to my gig in Hemel Hempstead whoops so I was like interesting <laughs> <laughs> so we got there and about a third of the audience turned up so we decided to do the show very carefully so what was really lovely was the i don't know if you did this the last week of um of your gigs of elbow bumping the compare as you walk on that was it's kind of pointless though because you're all sharing the same grubby microphone i know so. i know but it is it's, it's it's just a quite nice way of you know um saying hello to a compare it's just sort of like elbowing them a bit it's a token quite a nice token gesture crossover. towards uh towards uh hygiene and uh it is less trick because it's really easy to mess up a handshake especially when it you're it's so easy or worse a high five and you miss it oh do you, saw, do you know the, do you know the trick been... for that izzy this will change your high fiving life if you're ever if we're ever allowed to high five again um go on you tell do, me the honestly trick. you just look at their elbow and you can't miss so Something about the alignment and you of your just eyes. Hit their elbow. No, that's you don't. No, you do. don't. Honestly, I, I would. It sounds like rubbish, but it, it's true. It, I'm I'm very dyspraxic, and now I can do a perfect high five. Okay, if you say so. It, it's true. <laughs> I was till I tried it. Um, yeah. So the gig went ahead. Uh, the gig yeah, well, did go ahead, but slightly, slightly. A lot of us were a bit sort of sad. I was, I was closing that night, and it was a bit sort of. Everybody's a bit sort of. Like, What's going on? It's quite scary. Uh, but you know, it was, um, it was a fun little gig. I just, I just felt bad for the staff there, as I still do. Yeah, it's horrible, isn't it? Hospitality industry is not the industry to be in at the moment. And I, I was supporting no. the pubs right until the night before they all closed. So I've done, <laughs> Getting I've, drunk I've in I've them. I've done my bit. <laughs> Excellent. But I, th- I think we, we are in the same category, Izzy, be it people that, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, that hated PE and that kind of thing at school, but now later in our lives we've found a sport that we like and are now more yeah. into fitness. Would you say that's correct? I think that's perfectly... I made my PE teacher, Paul Miss Koshot, 
Uh, I made her uh, play me at chess in my last PE lesson of high school uh, because everybody else was in like was like proper good students and they were in like school council or they were off revising and it was you know and I was still in uh, lessons so I made her play me at chess in the netball court uh, and she lost so but yeah I was never very into sport and then after yeah, I've really got into it. Um, in like since I since I turned thirty, I've really gotten into it. I've started jujitsu. I've done a bit of pole dancing, and now if you know of the shred quarters, there's a little gym near where I live, and they're brilliant. And um, I just enjoy swinging a kettlebell around as well. Yeah, that's, all, all these things sound incredibly dangerous. I think pole, you're a climber, aren't you? Yeah, that you? is true actually. But I, I yeah. think there's certain maneuvers because I have friends that do 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 the pole thing, and I think the scariest yeah. thing is when they invert and slide down the pole and stop just before their head it touches the ground that is a that looks deftifying well it's fine it's not so much smacking your head it's removing all the skin off your thighs that's a a horrible thing is nobody really appreciates how bruised you get doing pole and also how sort of like chafing it can be so um you know and it's this really weird thing is if you if you want a pole that's easy to climb you pick a nice thin pole particularly if you're a woman because you've got smaller hands so it's you know it's easier to grip a smaller pole however those ones dig into you horribly so a big fat pole is much nicer for doing inversions and that's the thing but uh yeah it's it's technicalities technicalities dangling upside down like idiots so but i do like that i like the adrenaline of that that's what i've kind of because it's a bit like comedy you know we're stood on stage and we're doing something that's quite scary in many ways you get that little adrenaline hit same with pole hanging upside down sliding towards the floor same with jujitsu when you're being thrown over people's heads it's all you've got that adrenaline which i think is quite you know well, i just really like the, the sensation of climbing using muscles that you wouldn't normally use and the whole you get to see some beautiful parts of the world and there's this there's a, I don't know, there's just so many variations. It's also a very, very sociable thing. And I guess jiu-jitsu must be quite sociable as well. Incredibly sociable. You, you have to make friends. If, you're, if somebody's running at you with a metal chain or you have to run at somebody else with a metal chain knowing that if you hit them, you're going to really injure them. So you have to trust that they will move offline. And when they do move offline, you're kind of doomed because they're going to cook and argue you straight into the floor and nearly rip your fingers off trying to get the chain off you. And similarly quite... with, with uh, climbing, uh, somebody literally has your life on the end of a rope, so you say so yeah, you better be nice to them. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's quite... But it is that sort of thing of going, yeah, all jitsuka, we just make a lot of friends. So the entire time, we've still been doing jiu-jitsu classes in the lockdown. Well, I was about to is... say, because like, um, my, my climbing centre has been shut and the British Mountaineering Camp's Oh, that stupid beep. I'll say that sentence again. <laughs> the climbing centre has been shut and the British Mountaineering Council have advised, uh, well, told us not to go out climbing at this time so we don't spread, uh, the, the, spread the disease even more. Well, you see, you see, you're saying that annoyed, but like, if you get to the top of a really big cliff and you sneeze, that's a lot of people you can cover doing that. That is If you go down into a hole, you wouldn't actually, you know, it'd be covered up. But no, no it, 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 it is un- tr- unfortunately totally necessary. But at the same time, I, I've I've lost my sport. You've lo- lost your sport, although it doesn't sound like you have. How are you, how are you getting around the, the lockdown? Well, we're doing we're, we've lost the, the cool, fun parts of sport. So we lost spinning through the air over our own heads and doing all the thumping and the you know stuff together. However, we are doing like Zoom meetings. We're all sort of getting together and um, working out and doing movements which are suitable for jiu-jitsu, so lots of lunging and 
uh, doing lots of makikomi, pretending to sort of go into different throws and that sort of thing. So it's 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 not jujitsu, but it's it's still the same people. We're still saying instead of saying stop, we still say yame. It's you know it's quite fun. So you still still have a bit of camaraderie and still actually get a bit yeah. of a workout. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it's the same with the Shred Quarters as well. They've um, got lessons that they're doing online and we all sort of, in the morning, they sort of, you know, you're watching the people who are usually there shouting at you, not doing any exercise, doing all the exercise and getting very sweaty. So uh, I had Gemma this morning and, and her flatmate and uh, they were outside in their garden jumping up and down and I was jumping up and down in my living room with them. So it's it's... It's not the same, but it's it's, it's also the next you don't best feel thing, lonely. Yeah, no, that's because yeah. the thing I I was very very fed up with this whole thing uh, day before yesterday, and the difference was I didn't do any exercise that day. But since then, I, I've managed to put up a, a fingerboard uh, in the garden, which is a it's a <laughs> block of wood with various shaped holes. Not to be not a finger skateboard, although I do still have my collection of finger skateboards. But it's a of block of wood with do. holes in different sizes, yeah. so you hang off it and do pull-ups off it in order to train finger strength. Oh, that uh, sounds absolutely horrible. So I've, it is like a torture <laughs> device, but I've put it up in my garden, and uh, we have a WhatsApp client group called Quarantine what? Training, and we're all like nice. swapping tips, and I, I've been sent an amazing free app which says, oh, what do you want to train today? Core. So I did a core workout. I found this terrible exercise called a dish duck. Are you familiar with that? Okay. You lie, I've never heard of a dish duck. You're on your back, and it's like a sit-up, only your legs, you, you, you bring your arms over your head, then back to touch your uh, touch your legs as you come in. So it's like you're kind of hovering. It's a, one of those typical core exercises, and it's, it's horrible. Uh, but I do, I do feel my mood is dramatically lifted from doing this this afternoon. Yeah, I mean, it, doing any exercise is absolutely, I just think it's so important. And also when you're doing it with people, I think it's good. By the way, for everybody who's very, um, like, you know, um, intimidated by all of the terminology that Rodgers using, do you remember that um, if you've never met a Rodgers, he's he's a very slight man and a very strong man all at the same time. You know, being able to lift yourselves up by your fingertips is not a requirement for doing any exercise. I no, just no, want it's to not. Underline that. Nor is being a dish duck, although it does sound a bit like a hollow rock. But <laughs> you're bringing your legs up. I'm, I'm confused. I think, I think, you've, yeah. There's probably various names for it and uh, climbing. Yeah. Cl- I think climbing <laughs> just likes jargon. Um. Yeah. Well, yeah. You know, all of our stuff in jiu-jitsu's in. Japanese, which isn't really Japanese because none of us have ever been. But uh, <laughs> it's as but Japanese. Yeah, you're, you're right. I'm, I'm doing a lot of horrible climbing specific stuff, but you could equally get just as much endorphin and as much enjoyment out of uh, a nice, simple yoga uh, workout. And there's lots oh, of yeah. good yoga Doing workout. yoga or Pilates. And yoga is horrible. Those people who think that yoga is easy, it's not. But I you like can it. obviously every well you would you're very strong <laughs> it's, just, it's just really you know we just like just hold the chaturanga for a minute ah oh, and your nose is an inch off the floor it's a uh, you know it's not easy I mean, i'm not i'm not very good at it and the trouble is when you see the people who know what they're doing they make it look effortless and it doesn't and it, they don't give away even with facial expressions how much like they're having to do <laughs> like yeah it's a bit of a trick really, isn't it, it? It is it is an absolute nightmare. Uh, I just can't. Crow, in particular. If you want to hang upside down, just Google the word crow. I can't do that. I can't do, I can't do crow pose. You, are, you, you should be able to, though. It's just it's just a matter of believing that your head won't hit the floor. I miss and doing does, acro yoga. 
when uh, we do partner yoga, there's two of you doing hands, headstands and handstands on each other. But obviously, no, we I've can't seen do that. your Insta and you, you are working with gymnasts, it seems, half the time when you're doing stuff like that. It's amazing. It's good fun, but we can't do that while this pandemic is on. It will, no, make, it will make us appreciate all this stuff we all took for granted. I've been, I'm making a list of people I want to hug. Oh, <laughs> just go who am i gonna hug first and how long am i gonna hug i'm never i'm gonna be like a limpet it's gonna be awful so have you got any i've, I've described to you my garden setup which uh yeah. which involved me actually doing some diy i was nearly a burden on the nhs when i uh when i was using a power drill <laughs> uh luckily <laughs> it went all right do you, have you set up any ingenious contraptions or well i've got because i don't have any um like um like dumbbells and stuff what i've been doing is when i'm doing my punches in the air i've been holding some tin cans so i can do shadow boxing and punching with some tin cans in my hand also um i've put some weights i've got some books in an old rucksack so i can use that as a kettlebell that's a bit lighter because i've got one very heavy kettlebell and one uh not so heavy kettlebell i need a medium one so i use that instead of a medium-sized kettlebell brilliant so uh, yeah my friend with books in you should see my friends make makeshift climbing gym uh he is filling big bo- bottles of that used to contain milk full of water and using them as weights and doing like weighted yeah. pull-ups and stuff it's uh, it's it's insane. you know it's classic i mean also in my garden i haven't filled them yet but i've got a couple of concrete planters which are brilliant for deadlifts they're really heavy i don't i don't <laughs> do any about 50 kilo i've never done any any lifting of, of weights or that sort of thing well you've um, lifted yourself and that's heavy enough yeah. i think well especially after, <laughs> after if i have you know the last week of not doing a great deal uh, and like last Last night, I ruined it all by going on a digital pub crawl. I actually felt like I'd, I'd, uh, I'd be on, been on a night out when I woke up uh, late this morning. I find the trouble with doing these group chats and things like that is it's not very... Because in a group, what usually happens is it breaks up into two or three separate chats. And when you're all in one group, it never really works the same. It sort of... Yeah, it, it feels... It doesn't feel as natural in that way. The way that when you're in the pub, so, you know, two or three of you talk at one end of the table, another two or three of you talk, and then you come together and you split off. And it's that element of it I really miss. Yeah, one of my friends actually prefers it. He said it's it's got all the uh, good things about going to the pub, i.e. beer and chatting to people, but about all the horrible things, i.e. queuing and obnoxious people at the bar. So yeah. <laughs> one of my friends prefers it. <laughs> Uh, that's that's uh, well i i just i just think you know you've got to have a bit of obnoxious people at the bar i think and there's also yeah it just feels a bit weird to be sort of getting drunk on your own in your living room i i like the way that's becoming normalized now by this that is another positive it's gonna be weird the whole thing is very weird it's almost gonna be once we get used to it it's almost gonna be stranger reverting gradually to normality i know and then we got to go back to normal it's going to be really odd. And like, oh, what? We have to go to work, do we? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they can't make us. Uh, we've talked working out, and uh, well, the other thing that you do, which I think you can carry on doing, um, because uh, it's it's a very solitary pursuit. You are an author, and you've recently had a book. I am an author, and I have been writing. I have been uh, more researching than writing. Well, your new book is called The Unstoppable Letty Peg. Now, without totally ruining the ending or anything, can you give us a brief synopsis? Well, pretty much. It's basically Letty Peg. Um, she's she's a kid, and all she really wants to do is make friends and not seem weird, but it, her parents make it difficult because her mum's a suffragette, her dad's a policeman, so the sort of fight for suffrage spills into her own home and she follows her mum secretly 
you know, naughtily to a protest, which turns out to be Black Friday, which is one of the most violent suffragette protests where the police really are beating up the women and the women are really fighting the police. And she gets rescued by Edith Garrett and she learns jiu-jitsu. And in learning jiu-jitsu, she learns, you know, basically to find out who she is as a person. To She learns how to face her fears and she learns how to help people when she can. She learns how to control her emotions and overcome her fear, basically. And the whole story is about the adventures of her. And really sort of, you know, it's 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 got lovely bits with it where, where you're talking about, you know, um, the teacher being a really horrible man and her getting revenge. And there's a lot of horse poo in this book. There is a lot of... Because it was 1910, theme. there were a lot of horses. That horse poo was in it. So um, if you don't like horse poo, you will hate this book. However, if, you, if you're a bit of a rose gardener, this is the book for you. So, so, so some of the characters in this, so some of it's based on actual reality. There were suffragettes yeah. that were training jiu-jitsu, presumably to defend themselves against... Police. Yeah, well, the thing is, it's it's this sort of weird thing where most of the suffragettes want to be arrested. So it's this really sort of weird, because I go to schools and I sort of say to kids, you know, how would you feel if you're a suffragette and you got arrested? And they will oh, be really sad. And then, you know, I can flash up a picture of Annie, Annie Kenny looking absolutely ecstatic that she's getting arrested. Because if you're arrested, it's, it means you're a political prisoner and you can make a fuss and say, listen, you know, this is how we've got to spread the word that women deserve the vote because we are fighting for this. And so they're very happy to get arrested until the government starts to change the rules and say that, well, if you're arrested, you know, if you go on hunger strike then we're going to release you um without any protest but as soon as you get better again we're going to it's called the cat and mouse act they read you know they got them in again so the suffragettes needed protection and so to stop themselves being arrested they employed um the tactics of jiu-jitsu so they used they also used things like indian clubs they also trained in schwingen and um a martial art for gentlemen called bartitsu oh is that um, so- like fencing with brollies we exactly that fencing <laughs> with um, with walking sticks That's and uh, using your cape and your pocket watch and that sort of thing. Uh, it was invented by a guy called Edward Barton Wright, who also founded the Golden Square Dojo. And um, if you don't think you know Bartitsu, you do because that is the martial art that Sherlock Holmes used to defeat people like Moriarty. So, when you so you, you've done a, a little tour of schools, haven't you? You've you've taken the book into schools. That's right. What, what's what's the reaction from children? And I want to know: do, is this a book that boys are enjoying as well as girls? Yes, it is. Which I'm really happy about because it is one of these things where you know you ask a you know a, a little girl can read a, a book about a little boy and it's absolutely fine. But you know, little boys are much more um, progressive than you think. I mean, loads of little boys' favourite book is Matilda. You know, that's the, you know, Roald Dahl's Matilda is hugely popular with boys. And just because it doesn't contain many boys doesn't mean it's not for boys. It's a bit like, you know, Harry Potter. Girls can read Harry Potter and don't get obsessed and sidetracked by Hermione existing. You know, it's I do think as well that it opens it up and it sort of makes it I I try what, you know, lettuce sort of, you know, because she's she's. A child in 1910, she doesn't care if women get the votes or not, really, because she's not a woman, she's a girl. What does she care? And so it's explaining to her why she should care, but also explaining to her that the reason women don't have the vote isn't just misogyny. It's also the fact to do with people being scared of change and also the fact to do with people in power not wanting to lose that power. And there's so a lot of it is... You know, it's something that boys can really relate to as well, particularly the violence, because there is quite a bit of violence. That is, and that is always fun. You know. So it's not a book where the boys will feel blamed 
for the suffering of the oh, suffragettes. Gosh, no. That's good. No, 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 not at all. I mean, in, in many ways, no. I don't think there's 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 hardly the only baddie, the real baddie. There's a teacher who's a baddie, which is fair enough. But the real baddie, the culprit, as far as Letty Pegg sees it, the man who's responsible for all of her woes is a man called Winston Churchill. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of him, <laughs> but uh, he, he's a terrible insurance. man. So the, the book has a bit of a go at someone who is a hero to many. Yeah, and, and don't get me wrong, Winston Churchill, definite hero. But in 1910, he was the Home Secretary and he made a lot of decisions which resulted in suffragettes being injured and suffragettes suffering quite a lot and delays to women getting the vote, which he did possibly for pragmatic reasons, possibly because he didn't really care either way. But um, it, it's one of these interesting things that one time a one-time hero can also be a villain, depending on the glasses yeah. you are, are wearing when you're looking at them. And but yet, certainly in 1910, Winston Church- I would not have been a fan of Winston Churchill in 1910. Because in school, I definitely studied the suffragettes, but I don't know if they kind of whitewashed over that bit. I don't remember Churchill... Well, yeah. Exactly. I I did. Silly. I, so, I I studied in school. They were really boring because all they did was starve themselves and get run over by horses. And what you know, I well, don't they, care they about They set fire to letterboxes. This is true, but they didn't really like. We didn't talk about the exploding letterboxes. We didn't talk about the fact that most of them set fire to themselves by accident. We didn't talk about like all of the messages that they sort of burnt into cricket grounds and burning down houses and cutting phone lines and smash. Well, I think we mentioned the window smashing at school. It was proper terrorism. Proper? No, seriously, women were banned from most galleries and um, museums in London and uh, throughout the country. Like, in order to get into the British Museum and the British Library in 1910, you had to have a man escorting you who's responsible for you, or you had had to have a letter written by your doctor or a a gentleman to let them know that you're all right and you weren't going to smash everything. So it's quite a, you know, know, women were seen as dangerous. Yeah, it sounds like they were. (laughs) Just just give them the vote, for goodness sake. Stop blowing things up. Unbelievable. So um, is there going to be, is it the sort of story where you can do another adventure of Letty Pegg or is, is it, oh, is it I too? I do think so. And I do hope so. So, I mean, basically it's, it's one of these things where, you know, the publishing industry is the publishing industry. So I really hope that enough kids like it to want a second um, copy. I mean, if you want to find out more about it, do go to my website. If, um, if you're interested, it's izzy.com. That is I S Z I.com. And if you lit, Clink, cl- clink. If you clink the book link, if you click the book, uh, clink the book lick. That would be wrong. That's no, the click the book link um, on izzy.com, I-S-Z-I.com. You'll see the unstoppable Letty Peg. Uh, but you can get it from, I think they've got a sale on, at Bloomsbury at the moment, but you can get it on any bookshop. Awesome. Thank you very yeah. much for sparing the time, Izzy, and enjoy Thanks, the rest of your evening. This is the Stand and Deliver Comedy Podcast with Rodders. That was Izzy Lawrence. I found that very cathartic, uh, talking all about how we're, we're still trying to keep active whilst all this horrible lockdown stuff's going on. So that was good. And we even got a bit of uh, uh, suffragette escapism as well. And I've just realised that the exercise I was referring to as a dish duck is actually a dish tuck. I feel like a right idiot. Another excellent dyslexic moment. 
Now, just before we get on to our main guest, Arna Speck, I thought I'd try and rack my brains and try to remember the last gig I did. Uh, looking at my diary now, it was back on Monday the 9th of March in Battersea at Right Funny Comedy. Now, despite it being a Monday night gig, it was pretty much a full house. and There was even a magazine photographer uh, who, who uh, was snapping pics whilst, uh, whilst we were on stage. And I remember this being a really exciting evening for me because I'd just uh, very recently done a uh, a comedy workshop with Sean Morley. Now, I've got no formal training in comedy and and I thought, well, it's probably about time I did. And my comedy is sort of steadily drifting towards doing more improv and surreal stuff and I thought that I'd, I'd be I'd have some courage and actually try and kick it in that direction and, and just see what happens. And if you haven't seen Sean Morley, uh, the word unique is really overused now, but he truly is a unique act, a master of audience manipulation and true improv. And in fact, you can see his entire headline set uh, from when he was at Stand and Deliver on our YouTube channel. If you just type in to YouTube Stand and Deliver Comedy, look for the Sean Morley video. Uh, the whole 20-minute set is there, and I, I do urge you to watch it. It is fascinating and funny in equal measure. Now, the workshop, without giving too much away, because obviously uh, Sean will want to start uh, opening up this class again once he's able to. Uh, I don't want to ruin the ending. That'd be really, really rude. Wouldn't like ruining. It's worse than ruining a film because I'd be, I'd be ruining his class. Uh, but it was called Scriptless Stand Up. And it, the whole sort of message was that a lot of comedy nowadays seems quite stilted and scripted because it's packaged as if it's definitely going to go on the radio or the television and kind of ignores the main advantage of comedy is that it's a live form of entertainment and your audience are right there in the same space as you. So why not harness that and take advantage of that? And that can be as simple as uh, sort of pointing out and and doing stuff based on the fact you're in a weird room because it's been a, a lot of times you're not in a pristine art center you're in a weird part of a pub or whatever in the middle of nowhere so why not turn those obstacles into advantages and he also said a lot how um many comedians when they do improv they'll improvise something on stage and then they'll write it down and it just becomes yet another bit and then we'll obviously lose its uh, fluidity and spontaneity as uh, so we talked a lot about how to make make sure things were truly improvised now what did amuse me was that it's called scriptless stand-up and uh, one of the first things we did in the workshop was a writing exercise which i thought was brilliant but uh, honestly it's such a worthwhile uh, workshop it's made me really excited about performing and now I really, really can't wait to get back to it uh, because I had two gigs after the workshop and uh, Sean set us homework after uh, the class and uh, he said that we had to go and try out the techniques we'd learnt and then send him a recording and only then would we be released. Um <laughs> And yes, so I had three gigs immediately afterwards. In fact, two gigs were the day of the workshop, so that was very handy. And then I had uh, that one gig in Battersea that I just told you about. And it was so exciting to go up there and know roughly what you wanted to happen, but no real idea how many you were going to get there. And it made me feel like a new comic again in a a very good way. I, I got those butterflies and it was just so exciting. Um, so yeah, it, it was good to end on uh, not only a high. Um, if I was gonna, I mean, I'm glad my last gig didn't go horribly wrong. But not only was it good to uh, uh, end on a bit of a high, but also 
end in a way where I think I might actually be finding the style of comedy that suits how I am. So that's very exciting and encouraging. Now, it's probably time we got to our main event. Our headline act on the podcast is Arna Speck from the Netherlands, uh, works at the British Museum and is an all-round fascinating person. This was recorded last summer backstage at Mates Rates Comedy. In fact, it might have been the show I compared. And we started talking just as the place was being packed up after the show. This is Anna Speck. This is the Stand and Deliver Comedy Podcast. My mind's a blur. Were you first in the second half, second in the third? I can't remember now. Um, I was second in the second half. So. It was worrying I forgot that because I was emceeing this afternoon. <laughs> Um, but it was quite a fun show today. Uh, it was it was quite warm. Uh, the audience were sleepy at first, but I think they woke up. Did you did you enjoy them? Yes, I think the the acts really were were brilliant. So they really woke them up, as you say. It was it was a lot better than than I thought a Sunday afternoon um, comedy show would go. So yeah, definitely enjoyed it. It is a worry because outside Edinburgh, you don't get many afternoon shows. So you do wonder what what they're going to be like. So have you have you ever done an afternoon show before? Many of them. Um, that's a good question. No, other than like on fringe festivals, I don't think I've. No, that's not true. There, I did a, a cake show that was deliberately um, on the Sunday afternoon, but they made all their cakes for the audience, so that was that was pretty exciting. Oh my goodness! I've only ever been to one comedy show that does cake. It's weirdly enough, it's called Coffee Cocktails and Jokes, and the promoter uh, will ask you the night before what sort of cake do you want. Absolutely bizarre. Um, <laughs> so to how long have you lived in the UK? Because you started, obviously, from the Netherlands. Yes. So you've been over here, yonks and yonks, I guess? Um, for about 15 years now, I think. So did you start comedy over there, or did you start it when you were here? I started it in the Netherlands. Um, I'm one of those people, you know, that just was always part of the stage, one way or another. Um, but there's no, not really a tradition of stand-up in the Netherlands, so I did a lot of uh, what you call cabaret, which is sort of sketchy... Um, kind of yeah comedy lots of funny songs it's a lot more theoretical than stand-up is so how long how long ago roughly was this was it when you were at university there or what or did you always Um, do performing when you were at school yeah so um definitely at school i don't know about yourself were you were you there on stage i was in i was in the i could i could never remember lines so i'd always be in the chorus and like the biggest role i ever had in a school play i was the second judge in the crucible and i came in at the wrong time and they were all actors so they couldn't improvise so the whole thing just ground to a (laughs) halt and i've never felt more guilty in my life i i ruined the crucible (laughs) But I bet it was funny to the audience. But. Uh, not really, no. <laughs> I just had a grand time. It's funny now, but I was right. like, I was like, hey, admittedly, I should have hopefully remembered my lines, right. but like, surely they could have improvised around it. It wasn't like the biggest spanner in the works. I didn't right. suddenly change character and turn it into a musical. I just right. came in at slightly the wrong time. Um, <laughs> that was it. And, they, and actors can't seem to cope with these sort of things. Where was your... your first gig so my first first stand-up was at university in england Mm. um so yeah so at at school in holland we used to do at the end of term like performances where anyone could do anything that you wanted so 
So it's like a review show kind of yeah, thing. So, exactly, and yeah. what what do you do? Were you doing sketches and stuff in that? Yeah, I just write my own rubbish, uh, which was really rubbish. Not you know false modesty. It was really rubbish. It was like what I thought was funny in those days, and and then just embarrassed myself for the, you know my entire school years. Um, and then that um, secondary school tune two friends of mine um we got a little group together which was called l star um after the apple and uh, we did sketches and then i went to university in amsterdam and then one year in england thinking it was going to be one year and to study comedy actually and i studied at the university of kent where you could study comedy which that's amazing i only know one other person andy field is another comic i knew that did a a comedy degree so it's, it seems like, because I've never done a formal comedy course. I, yeah. I, well, I paid for some tuition a, a while back, but I'd never really... So, like, was it was it useful? Because uh, some people, there's arguments, isn't there? Some people say, oh, you can't teach it. And other people say, well, no, you very much can. And you've got people in the middle going, well, no, you've got to have the comic instinct, but then they can teach you all the, all the fine-tuning. So where do you stand on that kind of spectrum? Yeah, I think, I think I'm in the middle. I think there's some things of comedy you can very much learn. Um, but there's always something that is instinct or talent, as they call it, and inspiration, you know, um, that, that gets you that extra bit further. Um, so I think, especially for me, it was to get up on stage and by myself and talk to people that directly. It was really nice to get that little bit of extra help um, from a comedy course. But I can also see how you don't can totally not need a comedy course at all. It's very simple if you're yeah if you're that gutsy in a way. So I did a I did a philosophy degree. So when I was yeah. handing in essays and going to yeah. seminar groups, did yeah. you have to was your homework to go and do a gig? Like how does how does the course work? So the comedy was part of uh, just a drama degree. Mm. So we looked at sometimes uh, certain times of comedy, like we looked at all the radio sh- comedy from the 1950s, and then had to make one ourselves and and then write an essay of our experiences and research and stuff. That was really fun. I mean, I'm not going to lie, it was really fun. <laughs> I don't think I would ever get a job out of it, but it was really good. Um, and then and then towards the master that I actually did was in sort of comedy research, as we call. It, so we would try certain like punk comedy or you know or try to really provoke the audience or work with um, the um, limitations of comedy so I did as my master show an entire gig in Dutch uh, for an English audience and then wrote uh, did any of them speak English or was that the point that they didn't that was the point so I I mean, it is an intrinsically funny-sounding language, so I guess that puts you ahead of some languages. I mean, did you have to do a lot of physical stuff? Because I guess they can, you can judge where punchlines are, so you sort of know when to laugh. That must have been... Were they, do they know what they were getting, the audience? Yeah. So they, so they I mean, kind of knew what they signed up for. I mean, depressingly, it was probably one of the, the best gigs I've ever done. <laughs> so, so it, was, it was so interesting as well, because I don't know about you, but like the idea of comedy has always really fascinated me, um, which is why I wanted to do that degree. Um, just, you know, why do we laugh and, and what does make people laugh and what happens when you laugh and that kind of stuff. Um, so what works best during that Dutch show was I had slides hmm. and then talked in Dutch about the slides and so the audience knew roughly what I was talking about um, and then sometimes laughed because they didn't get me sometimes laughed because they got me as well what I was saying or just the confusion or like you say the words of, of something um, interacting with people as well in Dutch when they got a bit 
scared, I guess, of the fact that I was talking in a language they didn't understand, and then everybody had to laugh about that tension that appeared. Um, so that kind of kind of thing. It didn't all work. Don't yeah. get me wrong. Like there were some little bits that totally didn't um, didn't land. But did you do crowd work? That's my that's yeah. my main yeah yeah you. absolutely, and it worked so well because you know the people were bonding in this idea that they had no idea what I was saying. So the audience really felt like one group. Um, so yeah, it's, it was very interesting, and um, it was a really good gig. Yeah, that's really really bizarre. I guess because like my only sort of research into why we do comedy and stuff is from uh, Jimmy Carr's The Naked Jape, yeah. and it goes on about how laughter is like a release of tension, going back to when we were all yeah. uh, apes and stuff. Well, but, yeah. So, yeah. but if you look at its bare bones, it is an odd thing. Stand up, like someone just stands there, tells silly stories right. in order to elicit a really specific response yeah so that where, where did you what was your like key finding from doing your masters why did and did it did it ruin it would maybe did it ruin comedy a bit for you because now you've seen why we do it not no not for me it, it got even more because even more interesting which is one of the reasons why i started doing gigs outside university um was just because i found it like Coming from a more theoretical way of doing comedy, the idea of stand-up, of just having nothing and just such a direct contact with the audience is amazing. And I really liked it. And I don't know, but if you have a great gig, if you ever have a great gig, it's something so, like, the energy that goes around is so magical. It's so... It's almost like a drug in a way, isn't it? And you can, you know, those feelings when you improvise something and it really lands and it's just like, it's like hitting a goal or something. It's just, it's amazing. So for me, it just opened all these more ideas and, and avenues to think about comedy and I started to really like it. So it's Yeah, it's, 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 it is feeling, it feels very empowering when it works, doesn't yes. it? And I, I guess a lot of acts you'll see, they'll do badly regardless because their the material can be great yeah. but if they don't like strike up a rapport with the audience that it doesn't matter how good yeah. the, the pun is they just yeah. won't won't fly yeah and i think that was one of the things that i learned during my masters like there as much as you can research comedy there is something that you just can't put your finger on it it's the more you research is the more it's um it's like this you know it keeps slipping away there's so many elements that you think okay good comedy is good jokes but it's good jokes told by the right people in the right way at the right time in the right audience right there's all these little things that are just um that are so difficult to get so the master's course was part writing essays and stuff yes. and then part actually having to go out and do stand-up absolutely yes and then especially playing with the format of comedy so doing something one one of my um fellow students that year for instance tried to hurt himself on stage and see how far that got <laughs> um so that was interesting i think what was he doing hitting himself a bit of wood what was he doing yeah his idea was so slapstick is funny why is slapstick funny when does it become not funny and you know so he just got um he just started to hit himself on stage. <laughs> was the answer when it drew blood <laughs> <laughs> yes a lot earlier than that to be honest. So, oh my goodness um, so those, those kind of things that's what we were playing with um so it was very interesting i mean i wanted yeah. to do well with my degree but I, w- I would never have maimed myself for it <laughs> that was insane yeah. so i guess these performances did you have to promote them yourself or did you manage to get on other bills because then you have to learn to be a promoter, which is a another skill in like I'm another sure world entirely. You know, right? Yeah. Um, no. So these gigs were always organised by the university on campus by our teacher, um, by our sort of our mentor. Um, but we were we we were told to go out and gig. We had to do a certain amount of gigs outside and wow. write about them. <laughs> um, so yeah. So that was um, that was also very interesting. Yeah. 
um, just to go out and try in different places. Um, so, yeah, my very first gig, if you'd like to know, was mm. at university, and I forgot all my jokes. <laughs> oh, it's awful. That happens intermittently with me now. Like, it's, it's horrible. It's like the, the ground's open, everything. Yeah. Well, I'm up there with nothing. I've got no armour. I've got... Oh, God, yeah, no. Exactly. And I just heard myself say, I forgot all my jokes, which, funny enough, got a laugh, because people were like, oh, OK... And I had been watching Eddie Izzard a lot at that time, and because um, it was about 2008, and he was like the biggest thing in comedy at that time. And um, he did this sort of like, or do I, or do I not? So straight away, as I said, I forgot all my jokes. I said, no, I don't, and I got another laugh. And so I kind of kept it going, um, which therefore was not that bad. Did that give you time to then actually remember your exactly, brilliant? Yeah, trick? exactly. So <laughs> for my very sort of first twenty or so, I knew I had a way out. That if I ever didn't remember, I would just say, "Oh, I forgot all my jokes," and I go, "No, I didn't." And so it became part of my of my set. So did you find out from this masters why comedy happens? Because I don't really question it. I just go along and do it these days. Um, well, there is a very unfunny book of Freud, which is like hilarious. The fact that Freud writes about comedy. But none of his examples are actually funny. He'd be the worst heckler in the club, <laughs> wouldn't he? Like, <laughs> and you're like, okay, Freud, I get what you're saying, but actually I don't, because I don't find funny the example that you just mentioned. Um, I think, but I like the mystery. I like the fact that there is always part of comedy that is just sort of ungrabbable, untouchable, um, which is fantastic. Um, but... So, yeah, so no, I didn't get a, a, an answer other than that I really like it and I, <laughs> <laughs> more than I want and that I reckon it's very unhealthy for people who do it. I do recognise that. Um, but it's, do you reckon it's, it's about moderation? Do you mean because of all the, all the late nights and all the just obsessing on something? Or I think people who go out by themselves, usually, in a pub um, to talk to other people, um, you know, and do that about two or three times at night, uh, in a week, sorry. So that... The, that tells you that there's probably something slightly wrong um, with with us, basically. <laughs> yeah, I wonder. I don't think, isn't it just a nice thing to want to make people laugh? What's I don't yeah, wrong, yeah. wrong with that. But I think also there are many reasons to do comedy, to mm. be honest. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, some people like the attention. Other people like the fact that you're connecting with the audience. For me, that's that's mainly the thing, just to sort of laugh together kind of thing. Um, other people just use it as a vent isn't it as a sort of a free therapy kind of way and that's um, a really thing I struggle with I think that's a really weird but I think if, if somewhere you haven't got the prime goal of just making people laugh then it's kind of a bit wrong <laughs> like, yeah yeah absolutely absolutely um, but you know I find comedy is um, it's a weird form of self-expression that is I'm always looking for how personal should I make it and that kind of things that I sometimes struggle with that I don't know in the beginning a lot of my jokes were just things that had happened to me that I told my friends who then laughed and then I tried it on stage and then made it bigger or something mm. um, but then not a lot of funny things happened to me anymore <laughs> so then I had to come up with something else um, and I don't know about you but writing comedy is just shit isn't it it's, it's really hard yeah, it is. I'm trying to make myself write more, and it's working to a degree, but annoyingly I find I get better laughs when I just improvise. So I'm hoping my writing will catch up to my improv. And also I kind of try and do half-half, like I'll have something half-written, I'll go out there, I'll see what happens, and then I'll keep talking until hopefully there's 
there's a punchline, and then, or if I ad-lib something, I'll then write it down verbatim and then go and try it out and then do it that way. So I do a bit sort of writing on stage, but now I'm, I'm trying to do some more formal writing. But I kind of resent it because I don't want it to be like school. I don't want comedy to be... It's meant to be escapism. I don't want it to be like homework. Yeah, absolutely. I, I totally agree. And, and with me as well, I usually come up with something that feels slightly funny and then you go out and you do it until it's funny really isn't it so you just keep trying and trying because the best writing I do is always on stage it's always something I accidentally say so you don't write stuff verbatim um, you mean like sitting behind a desk yeah. kind of thing no well I try like you I try or do you do it or I do it bits and bobs like I had a gap I did quite a few gigs yesterday so I had a few hours to kill in a coffee shop so I wrote down some stuff and part, part of the time me writing is just going through all my notes and finding something I wrote and then forgot about about two or three months ago yeah. and then I'll try and make it work so it's very hard just to sit down there and do it and like I said part of me like one of my friends just said oh yeah I'm not doing many spots in Edinburgh because I'm going to try do more writing I just like saying what a nerd like you've got <laughs> hundreds of miles yeah. there's all this great stuff and you're just going to be sitting there on your, on your laptop but at the same time I recognise that to get better yeah. i'm probably gonna have to get better at writing yeah it's a, a very annoying yeah. there's conflict in me about yeah. it but isn't that interesting as well about comedy because sometimes you know the best performance are the worst writers and the best writers are the worst performance isn't it it's just it's the hard part you have to be both um but yeah i'm the same i, I find the writing really hard and really look like not very fun um it's much more fun just to do it half-heartedly and then try it on stage i think um and that's when the best stuff happens um, but then sometimes I think you need both. You need that moment of sitting down on the desk to come up with ideas of what you want to talk about. Um, because as well, today, we had so many different styles, didn't we? So many, that was really fascinating as well, the way that people approach it and what works for them. Um, with the, the Swiss lady who was so, like, a character. Mm. Um, oh, on uh, uh, Frank Kissling, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah Frank Kissling's really interesting because it's just like... It is obviously very scripted, but at the same time, it can adapt, and she can adapt to whatever goes on. It's like she sort of sets yeah. the parameters, and when within that, she can completely control what the yeah. audience are doing. So it's kind yeah. of that's kind of both. Um, and without wanting to, I don't want to spoil any of her gags in case anyone goes to see her at some point soon. But um, <laughs> the Swiss quiz always cracks me up. It's uh, yeah, and we had uh, there wasn't just one style. I don't, I don't think one style. Weirdly enough, that was missing. There was yeah. no just straight jokes there was no, no old school knock knock yeah. one liners <laughs> kind of thing that, yeah. that is that dying now is that dying out no I don't think that will ever die out to be honest um, but it's a really hard form of comedy because you know to do 20 minutes of one liners you need a lot of one liners um, but I was really thinking about Fran as well was like she's fantastic I really enjoyed her stuff um, but then you know when you go to like Edinburgh and you think okay so you're going to do an hour could you do an hour of that stuff? Could you do an hour of a character? Um, would people find it interesting? Because I always think comedy is also about just interest. You know, it needs to be it needs to be interesting, which is why our headliner tonight, Paul, was very interesting at the same time because he combines it with history, with archaeology, and therefore you, people find it interesting straight away. Hopefully. <laughs> yeah, I know Paul Duncan McGarrity that is, and he yeah, the, the acts I 
I like the best are the ones that blur the line between improv and material, so you can't really tell. I think, like, Paul Foote is my absolute favourite act of all time, and he kind of does that, and it's only through seeing the same set of his yeah. couple of times you can see where the join is. Otherwise, yeah. it's just like the first time you see it, you have no idea. Like, he normally does these ridiculous long false starts. Ten minutes in, he goes, well, we might start the show in a minute. And it's just like... And actually, that's quite tightly scripted. You discover when you see him for a second time. But then there's other bits that seemingly come out of nowhere. So there's still this yeah. big mystery. I still don't yeah. know what he actually has written <laughs> down on a bit of paper <laughs> somewhere yeah. and what he just what, what yeah. he just pulls out of thin air. So that's that's what I'd like to be able to do is completely blur the join between yeah. material and yeah. and improv. Uh, sometimes I can do it, but often it's like you can see a join. It's a bit, a bit yeah. clunky. Yeah, mm. absolutely. Just um. Yes, I think, you know, to have your set stuff that you know is good, that works, and then to improvise around it, that's what I would like to do one day. That's sort of my, what I would, that would be ideal, to go that style. You've written an hour, haven't you, or a half hour? Well, I tried. What is interesting for ten minutes is not interesting for half an hour. You need to somehow open up to the audience. That's what I've learned, I think. They need to get to know you. Whether it's you as the character, that's fine, but they somehow need to need to get to know what's going on with you to keep it interesting. Um, so last year I went to Edinburgh for the very first time. Um, I had a show at 12 o'clock at midnight. <laughs> um, at that can be okay. It can that be can okay. be okay. Well, yeah. what, was, it, was it or not? <laughs> I mean, it was uh, definitely an experience and it was, um, I had some good shows and some bad shows. So I think just a normal Edinburgh experience, to be honest. Um, it's just that I did a show about museums mm. and I called it um, Museum Peace, which maybe it's not the audience for 12 o'clock midnight. They don't really care about. Um, but then at the same time, because I had such a niche show, the people who were looking at 12 to come, they would come to my show because it made sense. They knew what I was talking about. So actually, I, I got very good audience because everybody had an idea of what I was going to say. I was going to talk about museums. I guess that already filtered out the, the rowdy, drunk football lads because exactly. they, they know them. that's quite, quite a good way of, of deterring yeah. them, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. So I had not the biggest of numbers, but those who were there were usually really, really up for it. So that was really good. Plus, you know, the weirdest experience ever of standing in um, in Edinburgh streets at like 11.30 and then somebody coming up asking if I was going to talk about the database of the museum. Which <laughs> I was like, I beg your pardon. <laughs> I was like, are you going to talk about Mimsy? I was like, you mean Mimsy the database, Mimsy? It's like, yeah, it's really crap. <laughs> so <laughs> no. you actually used to work in museums, didn't you? Is that, I that do, the case? yeah, I still, still do. Still do yeah, now? Job, which which yeah. one? The Museum of London. Um, oh, no, I have so, been there. Have you? Yeah, so oh, it's okay. now like a mega refurb within the last yes, five years. Very soon, yes, I remember, very I remember soon. seeing the, the Queen's Golden Carriage there. That's well, impressive. Yes. <laughs> and uh, an Aurochs. Is that what it's yes, called? Very big good. Medi- not medieval. Well, no, prehistoric. Prehistoric yeah. big tusk thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Is that still there? Yes, absolutely. Yes. Good. All visitors should be like you um, because most visitors come and ask where the dinosaurs are. And <laughs> You're like, yeah, in the British Museum. Oh, uh, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually in the Natural History Museum. I say it wrong myself. Um, at London <laughs> Zoo, I did ask the keeper where the elephants were and they said whipsnade. I was like, oh, um, <laughs> whoops. <laughs> uh, yes, um, but it was, it was a good experience. Um, so, yeah, go and do it. But to write an hour is very differently. It's a lot, it's, yeah, it's such a different... So were you doing a full hour or was it slightly less with some it support acts? It was slightly acts? less. Yeah. And I did a support act, um, and I got a really bad review from um, Chortle for it. (laughs) 
So, um, but a really good review. I read that. When the main criticism yeah. seemed to be the fact it was a compilation show you had a support act. Which I, was only 10 minutes of it. But sure, okay, fair enough. I so. thought that was just like... I'm, I'm, I find it really weird, the idea that you'd ever just put on a show that was 40 minutes or 30 minutes. Yeah. I'm, this my instinct from running a comedy club is, take an hour and then give them a show with a couple of people in. Yeah. I just think that. And, all, and also at gigs, I'm always, or like music gigs, yeah. I'll always turn up and watch the support acts. It, yeah. It's part of value for money. Yeah. So the fact you gave them a bit more value yeah. for their bucket money I thought that was a, a bit of an old criticism yeah well I, I thought the, 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 the criticism he gave me was, was very good in terms of I agreed with most of what he said but what I thought was a bit unfair was like you know I've got a full time job and he you know I'm doing this somewhere on the side it was 12 o'clock mm. at midnight in Edinburgh in front of 10 people and he compares you to people like Eddie Izzard and you know it's like it's that I guess the reviewers just have to look at what they've got because yeah. if they were listed all the mitigating circumstances yeah, they'd have to go, oh well maybe they had a cold maybe they, yeah. maybe they didn't sleep well the night before so maybe I'll give them four stars you know what I mean yeah, maybe that's, that's how, how they have to do it that's true <laughs> yes that's true but yeah, so it was that was also an experience really um, to get a bad review. Um, so um, yeah, but it's it's a good experience, I think. But, but I wouldn't do it straight away again. Let's say it that way. It's a nice mechanic though for like a gig, like a well. I've tried, unfortunately, there's already a venue called the Museum of Comedy. But the fact that you're a curator collecting weird specimens and you bring on all these weird acts yeah. and then you do a load of stuff about museums and you bring on another artefact yeah. Um, yeah. it just seems, seems really interesting so yeah. another question I have do you think that so you said there wasn't much stand up in the Netherlands yeah was it mostly cabaret and yeah. do you think that certain countries because there seems to be tons and tons of com- stand up comedy in America yeah. and in the UK yeah. Did you was that in your masters? Did you find out why certain some country, countries just don't seem to have it? And if yeah. they do, it was brought there by expat Brits. Like in a lot yeah. of European cities, it was brought there. Some some of them just it's, it's expats doing yeah. it. Which is exactly what happened in Holland. So when I grew up, uh, which is a very long time ago, there was no stand up at all. But now there is a stand up community there. But it's mainly English people. Although slowly now it's starting to grow. Um, I think it's just a culture thing that's like I think every culture has a form of comedy um, that is already existing and it kind of fits with other things that they have in their culture Um, so the Dutch are very used to um, opinions and giving your opinion so their comedy is almost like preaching a lot of the time it's just and people don't particularly say a good show is hilarious as in English people you know who just sort of on the floor laughing Um, in Holland a good show can be someone who had made a very good case about something and slightly made you laugh that's amazing so they're not so when they go to a, a is it billed as a comedy night when they go yeah. there so they're not necessarily disappointed if it doesn't make them laugh as long as it engages them yes they, they, they. <laughs> I need to gig there yeah. I, I've said lots of interesting but not funny things yeah well this is the Dutch thing like I've had I've met so many other comedians who went to, to Amsterdam and gigged there and were like yeah weird audience um, they just applaud and they don't really laugh they go oh see what you did there kind of thing and they're not really very um, generous laughter as such it's just the Dutch are quite restricted I think in their emotions anyway a bit different um, and therefore laughing is um, 
is okay and they laugh and we've got some really good funny people in Holland like don't get me wrong there there are some really funny examples um, but it always has to have a, a certain look on society it has a certain opinion that you need to make at the same time because otherwise it's kind of wasted it's kind so of, it can't just be gags it needs to no. be backed up by some sort of really solid logic is yeah. that what they're after yeah exactly oh, so, that, that, so you have to do a lot of work actually <laughs> yeah. yeah so in, in Holland you know a gag of like knock knock who's there is just like no they're just going no that's just what you're doing um, but telling people how the prime minister currently is really shit is is really considered the, the ideal I guess oh. as long as it's backed up with lots of facts and data exactly yes and so oh. and you have to make it funny like yeah it needs to be so you can't just, you can't just be interested <laughs> oh. yeah, yeah. so they they exactly. sound very a very very smart audience on the whole it is I mean the yes. Brits are quite especially down south it's got a yeah. reputation for as you see gigging they are quite reserved and some audiences you get they'll come up to you afterwards and say oh really good show but yeah. it's like well they didn't laugh yeah. and then you go have you gigged up north you must have gigged up north like Liverpool Manchester around yes. that type of area they yeah. are so loud even if you get as far up as Birmingham yeah. they're yeah. suddenly so much more louder and yeah. open it's like yeah. <laughs> so much more appreciative yeah absolutely I think that's just that's just the south to be honest yeah. but um, <laughs> they have their, you know they can go to a comedy gig almost every night so they don't really appreciate it as much maybe as in the north I don't know maybe this is a huge um statement that's wrong but that's always my feeling like the people there are so much warmer because they really want you to do well um but yeah it's a bit like that it's a bit like that but you know the dutch are very (laughs) generous in different ways but that's what i like about england and that's why i like about gigging in england um because people are so generous and you just can just have fun just just fun you know just having a laugh that's what it's all about mm. well yeah I've never really been Dutch that's my problem <laughs> <laughs> oh really well uh, yeah, you, you've been adopted by, by the Brits now it seems so well, almost, what, yeah. almost. <laughs> what's, what's coming up then so have you got any any plans not doing Edinburgh this year but if no you... yeah so I've got a daughter now so um, she's only just one so I'm taking it easy and just giving like little gigs a go and using August to have more gigs because people are all up in Edinburgh um, and just looking for fun gigs really that, that's, that's hard though isn't it balancing having a family and then because you don't want to give up comedy totally but at the same time you've got responsibilities so I guess you try to keep your hand in when you can yes, so exactly. then or well, maybe she's a, a bit older uh, yeah. and then you'll have a bit more time and then suddenly you can jump back on it again yeah. and, and not be totally rusty, I guess. Exactly, that's exactly what I'm trying to do in, in the way that, you know, my daughter... Um, because it's really unfair because so much things are happening in my life now that could be really funny or that I you know if I had time to do more gigs could be a fantastic show it's just I haven't got the time right, write it all down yeah. write it all scribble it all down and you have this massive notebook when you finally get the time exactly. you'll have a yeah. <laughs> when she's at university or whatever you're suddenly yeah, like well, you'd have this two hour show mummy's going to do some comedy now so <laughs> <laughs> um, yes no I think that's true in a way um, so yeah just trying to keep it warm and trying to enjoy myself really I think sometimes the comedy community forget that part what do you think just having a good time is very important um, I think so Like, I think there's a, a contradiction I think comedians can take comedy too seriously and then if you take something that's meant to be fun seri- like obviously you have to put work in but if you take something that's meant to be really fun and a bit of escapism seriously it suddenly stops being fun and then you stop being funny and then I think some comic's gone spiral like that yeah I don't know about you but like the first 
couple of years when I did comedy I was really like serious and focused and I wanted to do really well and I was really disappointed if I wouldn't get to another stage in a comedy competition or something um, but then after a couple of years I just relaxed and just started to do the stuff that I that I thought was fun and I actually got better because you're more relaxed and you're I find that I find the more short term I've been if I can just yeah. get that joke yeah. to work and if I don't worry about the yeah. big picture exactly. then it's but I found it when you first start even just getting up there regardless of how you're just getting up there's this yeah. massive achievement and then when you've been doing, yeah. doing it a little while you look around at all the other amazing acts who have been going like 20 years and you think oh why can't I do that and yeah. then you get frustrated and then yeah. you, so it's easy to get your head uh, a bit, bit stuck in it all yeah and I think you know um, peaking too early is definitely not what you want either in a way of like I don't care if I'm going to do comedy 10 or 15 years you know as long as I enjoy it if it will ever get me somewhere where they want to pay me Mm. that would be fantastic but if not I'll just do what I find fun and see where it leads me Um, so and yeah my daughter is really fun as well Um, so I'm sure we'll we'll make a great show out of out of everything that's happening in my life right now Um, but you know you know that's what they said isn't it comedy is um, like um, what was it Trauma plus time or something like that. Tra- I think tragedy plus time. Trauma's a bit dramatic. Okay, <laughs> Amazing. So I think we conclude. Like having kids trauma, but <laughs> <laughs> you know, in a way, that is what you know. Something like that happens, and I'm sure I'm going to have lots of fun with it one day. So I think, in conclusion, comedy's great, but there is other stuff in life. So don't Absolutely. forget all that lot. Anna, thanks very much. You're welcome. Thank you very much. This is the Stand and Deliver Comedy Podcast. That was Arna Speck. Cheers for sparing the time, Arna. And also cheers to Nick Bayard, a Reading comic who runs Mates Rates Comedy. Not only did he let me compare that show, uh, but he also basically let me use his gig as a private recording studio for this podcast. So cheers, Nick. Well, this is normally the time I'd uh, tell you when the next show is and who we've got coming up. And to be honest with you, we don't know where the next show is, but there will be one. We just don't know when. Uh, but the show must go on online. We are trying our best to bring you as much content as we possibly can. I I say we, it's mostly been intern Reggie. We have gigabytes and gigabytes worth of footage because we record most of the comedy shows and with the artist's permission, we are uploading these to our YouTube channel. Stand and Deliver Comedy Club, just put that into YouTube and we pop up. It's also worth following us on Twitter at S&DComedy and uh, look us up on Facebook as well. We're posting as much stuff on the channels as possible. And to be honest, it's mostly intern Reggie that's been doing this, not me. So I've got to give him some credit. And he also single-handedly runs our Twitter page. Although he has annoyed me, to be honest. I I, I said to him that obviously jokingly, I said, Reggie, uh, when you upload the videos to YouTube, make sure you run antivirus software. You know, just a stupid joke. And he then sent me an invoice for a subscription to Norton Antivirus. Uh, So yeah, a tough crowd is intern Reggie, but, uh, but cheers for uploading the videos. So that's pretty much it for the Standard Deliver Comedy Podcast. Uh, but I thought I'd just share one more thing with you if you are struggling with lockdown, which I think I, I definitely am and everyone is pretty much. Uh, I thought I'd just share with you very quickly uh, something that's helping me. And don't worry, I, I'm not going to turn into Russell Brand. I, I, I won't suddenly think I'm an intellectual and start lecturing you every week because I know you come to this podcast because it's, it's a comedy podcast, albeit 
a podcast about comedy um the last thing you want is is your comedy club going all serious don't worry i will not be i'm not capable of doing that and also what i'm about to say might be blooming obvious but what i found really useful is just becoming really really short-termist because i found i've got most stressed and fed up when i've started looking ahead and worrying about how long this might go on for and then i just feel really really awful uh, so what i've been doing i've been planning but i've been planning but only a couple of days ahead at, at, at um a couple of days at a time because it's really nice to have something to look forward to for example uh at the end of last week i had a digital pub crawl with some of my mates uh, which was great fun uh, although now the be- my bedroom floor does resemble a bottle bank but it was it's really good just to have something in your calendar uh, to look forward to like that uh but i'm only really planning a couple of days ahead uh, for example today i had this podcast to record so i was really looking forward to that and earlier on i did some exercise in the garden so that was nice if i just focus on uh, the here and now and try not to look at the big scary picture then then that's helping me hopefully that will help you too i don't know i just thought i'd share it just in case it's useful and what would be really useful for me if you guys wrote me a nice review on itunes yeah that's right i had to get the good old bucket speech in there um yeah but seriously if you write a nice review on itunes or do something as simple as share a link to this podcast on facebook um, then uh, that gets more ears on the podcast and encourages me to make more of them. This is episode 25, so if you're feeling bored, then there is a whole 24 brilliant episodes, including interviews with Steve and Alan from The Mash Report, Robert White from Britain's Got Talent, all sorts of amazingly interesting people. So have a listen if you feel like it. And, well, that pretty much wraps it up. This is Rodders signing out for the Stand and Deliver Comedy Podcast. Podcast.